first step in any of these things is understanding the problem. So what you really need to do, first of all, is understand what Google has on you. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about removing Google from your life. In 2019, a journalist for Gizmodo, Kashmir Hill, spent six weeks living and reporting through a technology experiment. She was going to progressively cut the five big tech companies from her life. No Facebook, no Amazon, no Apple, no Microsoft, no Google. For most of us, the immediate consequences to this type of experiment are clear. You can't visit Facebook.com and you can't use Google search and you can't buy things from Amazon. Okay, sure. But then you also have to think about the hardware. You can't use an iPhone or a MacBook or an iPad or any PC that runs Windows. And so then you might think, oh, that's fine. I'll just use a Chromebook. And then, ah, nope, Google Chrome. You can't use a Chromebook. You can't even play video games on the Xbox, which is made by Microsoft. And good luck trying to professionally network without LinkedIn, owned by Microsoft, or using Instagram, owned by Facebook, or WhatsApp, owned by Facebook, or even, my goodness, try just getting around in a new city. No Apple Maps, no Google Maps, no Waze, which is owned by Google. And then, as if that all wasn't hard enough already, you start to realize that one of these big five companies doesn't just dominate online shopping, they also dominate online infrastructure. For Kashmir Hill, to stay true to her experiment, she had a technologist set up a VPN that prevented her from accessing any website that ran on Amazon Web Services, which, it turns out, is a lot of websites. All of these restrictions sucked. As Hill described it herself, quote, it was hell. Hill's experiment was like one of those digital detox camps you hear about, but just cranked up to 11. There doesn't seem to have been a moment of peace for her, a moment where she was detached from the noise of social media or the literal noise of constant phone notifications. Instead of freedom, again, there were just endless spiraling restrictions. Perhaps, just perhaps, Three years ago, Hill removed too many things all at once. Fast forward to 2022. Our guest on Lock & Co. today saw and read Hill's work and thought to apply some of those same ideas to his own life as a sort of New Year's resolution. He was going to limit his interactions with Google. Today, to help us understand why he took this endeavor on and what alternatives he relies on so that people also interested in limiting Google in their lives can do the same, we're speaking with Carrie Parker, host of the podcast Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and longtime cybersecurity evangelist. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hey, David, thanks a lot for having me here. And thanks for not calling me an expert. I, I get that sometimes that I just, I mean, I've interviewed experts, yeah. <laughs> you know, Bruce Schneier, Phil Zerman. I know experts that I can't, you know, put myself in their category, but then it's like, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? So compared to maybe, it's all relative, right? Maybe compared to most people, but yeah, anyway, yes, evangelist is what I like to be called. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I completely understand what you're saying there, right? When we know experts, it is hard to pretend like we are in the same category. 
With that, let's just jump right into it. I'm very excited about today's episode. It's something that I've personally wondered myself and I think could be helpful to a lot of folks. Again, right here, you're de-Googling your life, right? What made you want to minimize your use of Google products in your life? Well, it's a great question. And there's actually a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I don't hate Google. I mean, it's, you know, in the same way, I don't hate a particular person. I don't hate Google. I mean, you know, you know, I can, you know, definitely strongly dislike a lot of things they do. And that is really kind of behind it. And, you know, so Google, you know, Google's an ad company, you know, that happens to make a search engine and a bunch of other stuff, which we're going to talk about today. You touched on a couple something like 90% of Google's revenue is from advertising. So they, you know, make no mistake, they're an advertising company. I honestly love Google. I mean, I, I was a way early adopter when, you know, email came out in 2004. I was all into that. I think calendar came out in 2006. I was all into that. I mean, I, I liked it so much. I actually set up accounts for my toddler daughters at the time and because I wanted to reserve their names. And, and this was before I was really into privacy too. And so I reserved their names as their user IDs in Google, which they have to this day. But like me, they've created, you know, dummy accounts too, because, you know, for privacy, having your name as your Google handle is convenient on one side, but it's bad another. So I was all in at Google. And, and so for that reason, it's for me in particular, it's been hard because my feet are deep deeply interested in Google products. And honestly, their products are great. I mean, they're really easy to use and they're very powerful. And I would gladly pay money, good money, to use their products if they would just stop collecting all my data and, you know, and allow for full end-to-end -end encryption. But even the business version, even if you do pay for it right now, they don't really have full end-to-end -end encryption and client-side encryption. So for me, it was about collecting data. And they know so much. I mean, Google knows so much about us. And so... For me, it was about limiting as best I could how much information Google knows about me, removing as much as I can for things they already know about me, and then, you know, wanting to support companies who put privacy first. Uh, and so, you know, making a market for privacy-based products. And of course, you know, you know, being in our line of work, we get a lot of people asking us, you know, hey, is Google bad? And how do I get rid of Google? How do I ditch Google? So from that perspective, and kind of like Cashmere Hill, you know, I wanted to go through the process of this myself as well and, you know, document what I learned and pass this on to, you know, my listeners. Something you said there surprised me. And I think I even have heard that number before, but I think it still bears repeating, right? Which is that 90% of Google's revenue comes from advertising which is astonishing, right? Like, I remember a long time ago, more than a decade ago, like, I remember my brother asking me, he was like, hey, how, how does Google make money? You know, and I remember this is like, this is early days of Google when I feel like the advertising machine wasn't as ramped up as it is now. Like, this is prior to their purchase of that company, DoubleClick, I believe it's called which I think ramped up the data collection process tremendously so. And I remember even back then, right, this this question of like, wait, how does Google make money? How is it happening? And there's a very clear answer now. It's advertising. And you were saying that, you know, Google knows so much about you. Can you just give a brief sample of what, what does Google know? What does Google know about you? Well, I... Uh, no, I don't think I can give you a brief one, but I can, <laughs> I can try because it. <laughs> it's long. It's really mind blowing. And in fact, if Google has, if you want to, you can go online and you could go to about Google and look up the list of all their products. And if, if you just look at Google's own list of their own products, and I counted, there's over 80 
items on on their list of products. Now, you know, most people obviously will know the things where Google's in the name, right? There's Google Search, there's Gmail and Gcal, which is, you know, short for Google Mail and Google Calendar, Google Drive, Google Fiber, for those of you, and I've got Google Fiber for those of you with internet service from them, Google Pay, Google Photos, Google Authenticator, Google Hangouts. There's a lot of things with Google right there in the name, you know, so... But you may not have actually stopped to think about that. I'm sure just me just listing even those should be you know kind of eye-opening, right? Because you probably just hadn't thought about them altogether. But it goes on. As you mentioned in the intro, Google makes Chrome and everything with Chrome in the name. So it's not just Chrome web browser, which is bad enough. It's Chromebook laptops. It's even those little Chromecast dongles you know, that you buy that I don't know if they're still popular, but those little nuggets you could buy that let you kind of cast things to your television from one of your devices, right? But those are all that that it goes on, right? There's even more. So there's, you know, what people may not realize is that Google owns Android. I mean, Android, I mean, for as popular as iPhones are, Android really does rule the mobile world if you just look globally. I mean, they've way more Android phones on the planet than there are uh, uh, Apple-based phones. And they even make their own phones. They make the Pixel smartphones. Uh, and then, of course, there's YouTube and YouTube TV. Those are owned by Google. The Waze app, which you mentioned, the mapping app. But they also bought Fitbit. That might make you think a little bit. They have Stadia, which is their kind of cloud-based gaming thing. And then they also bought Nest, the smart home product thing. So they have a lot of stuff. And if, if all that wasn't enough, and I didn't even do all 80, the other thing you'll probably realize is when you go to websites and they say, you know, are you a robot? And you got to go that thing that says the CAPTCHA, which is a, it's actually an acronym, which I always forget what it stands for. But reCAPTCHA is Google's version of that, which a lot of websites use. So every website where you've had to prove that you're not a robot that has the reCAPTCHA tool on it is Google. And by the way, if, if you want to get creepy, you know, a lot of the ones that say, you know, check here if you're not a robot and you check there and they say, okay, well, show me all the pictures of something, fire hydrants or street lights or bridges or buses or whatever. How many times have you clicked the recapture one and it just checks? It's like, okay, like you didn't do anything. That's because Google has already knows enough about you and has been tracking long enough on the web, on your web travels. That's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I know you're human. Oh, what? <laughs> I... I had no idea about that. Yeah, they're already doing stuff in the background. That's why you didn't have to do anything more than check the box. Yeah. Oh, my God. I. <laughs> that's, in, that's so insane. And it's such a like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> like, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, even in the, the list of things that you went through, I think it's so funny. I forgot so many of those things that Google owns. Like when you said Nest and Fitbit. Fitbit threw me for a loop. They own so much more than I can immediately recall. And I'm glad you pointed out there as well that while iPhones may be the majority of the market in the United States, Android actually is dominant across the world. They're the market owner. And so Google owns the smartphone market just outside of our borders. I wanted to go back to something actually where you were talking about how you do like Google services and you enjoy them, you would pay for them. I'm curious, why did you choose to remove Google from your life if you at the same time find it so valuable? Because to me, that sounds like, hey, I I want to climb the tallest mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's other ones as well. And you mentioned some of those in the intro, uh, like Facebook. Uh, and Facebook, again, I, I don't hate anybody but i mean I, I facebook is probably worse to me than google in a lot of ways first of all they're really really bad about collecting your data and and they've been really bad about 
letting it loose. Like the whole, I mean, I, I had a minimal Facebook account for many years because I had, you know, like all of us, we have friends and family on Facebook and I just kind of lurked. I didn't really post. I kind of looked every once in a while to see whose birthday it was or whatever. And, but after Cambridge Analytica, uh, after that scandal broke, I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm out. And, uh, I, I deleted my Facebook account immediately since then, because I have a business, because I have other things and I need to, I need to be available to my audience. I have since recreated a Facebook account for my business. I still recommend as many people as possible. Certainly if you've not created one, don't, but so many people are so deep into Facebook. It's really like, kind of like Google. It's really kind of hard to extract yourself. So in some cases it's more about minimizing the data you share and minimizing your, your footprint, your data footprint with Facebook. But you know, that's another one. And I've done, we're not talking about that today, but that's certainly another one that, that I would recommend people distance themselves from as much as possible. And ones that I don't like. Amazon's a tricky one <laughs> because certainly during COVID when we don't want to go to brick and mortar stores, I've, I bought, I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, but now one aspect of Amazon though, I do have uh, want to boycott and want to draw people's attention to though, is like the ring doorbell. They bought ring. I actually had a ring doorbell back before they were bought by Amazon and it was really cool. You know, it's facing out. It's not a camera facing into my home. It's facing out of my house. It was really nice to be able to, to see what packages were there, to be able to talk to somebody at my door when I was at work or traveling. But Amazon has taken Ring in a whole dark direction. Um, and again, that's a different podcast, but they're really doing a lot of surveillance stuff. They're, they're giving them to uh, police and they're having the police help hawk them to, the, to their neighborhoods to try to set up surveillance networks. It's, it's super creepy. So <laughs> there's other ones I would recommend you get away from too, but, but I think today we're going to focus on one. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up with Ring. Anytime, right, someone brings something up and it's like, oh, that's a rabbit hole. I always like to try and address it as quickly as possible. And for folks who, you know, may have heard those sentences, right? For folks who have heard, Amazon is putting Rings into the hands of police departments and they're telling them to sell these products if you think that has to be an exaggeration, that has to be, that can't be, that's some crazy online rag spouting, you know, fabrications. Uh, it's happened. Uh, the documents supporting the sales have actually been discovered. There are scripts. There are written scripts that police departments are told to use. They're handed these scripts by Amazon, which is like, how is a company deciding what police say? <laughs> Which is, again, I'm just trying to plant that seed, and then we got to move on, unfortunately, because that is its own it's, its own episode. Let's move on, right, and let's talk about how this whole de-Googleization has gone so far. So what have you given up, and how difficult or easy has it been? Yeah, okay. So I actually, I rattled off a whole bunch of stuff, and, and I will just kind of hit some highlights there. But every year on my podcast, I put out a listener survey, and I ask people for their feedback on what kind of things they'd like me to cover. And more than one person mentioned, you know, hey, how do I de-Google myself? So I thought, okay, I've, I've done this myself a little bit, and I've touched on various aspects of it over the years. But let's, you know, let's actually make a whole series of articles on these. So I'm in the middle of it now. By the time this comes out, maybe three or four articles will be out and it'll probably be a total of five or so. We'll see how it goes. Um, but I started with, you know, the easiest things, or at least I, I think the easiest things, the, the ones that have maybe the least tendrils into other things. Like they don't affect anybody but yourself, for example. So Google search, that was an easy one. The one I went with was DuckDuckGo, but there are actually are now several. Uh, Start pages, another great privacy respecting search engine. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, behind the scenes, Startpage actually uses Google. They actually pay Google to get Google results. They just eliminate all the tracking. And they still make money. They've been around actually a long time, and they're making 
plenty of money and they do it with contextual advertising, which is to say when I go to start page and I search on Nike or Adidas or something and I want to see shoes, they may show me an ad for shoes on the side of the page. And that's it. They don't remember. They're like a Ted Lasso goldfish search engine, right? They don't, <laughs> they, don't, they don't remember what you searched on, but whatever you just searched on, that seems like something you're interested in. So maybe, you know, we'll offer you an ad based on that. And that is a money-making venture. You don't have to track people to make money. And start page is living proof of that. Anyway, so, okay, so Google search. So that was an easy one. Uh, and then Google Chrome. I I did use that off and on for a while. Uh, and then I just you know, made the choice. I'm not going to use it anymore. It's the most popular browser on the planet. It's used by 65% of people on the internet is far and away the number one browser on the planet. And it is, as browsers go, it's a good browser, but it's just not private. So I went with Firefox, but Brave is another great option if you're into that. And then the other kind of a no-op for me was not use Android. I've been an Apple fanboy for a long time, uh, and I would admit that. But moving from Android to iOS is a big one. So, you know, that's that's kind of like, for me, that was the first tier. And then the next one, which is harder, a lot harder because it involves other people, are Google email and calendar, uh, Gmail and Gcal. That's been hard, and frankly, I, I will probably never be able to fully get away from that. I mean, I've got shared calendars with my family. That I, I'm not going to expect them to drop Google like I am trying to do it. So, you know, for that reason, I'm, you know, I'm going to be stuck there for a little while. But I can minimize it, and, I, and for my business and for other personal things, I can use other products. And what I did actually, I, I did a lot of research on this because I really wanted to find something, and, and it was hard to find something that replaced all the functionality, but I, I found several that are very, very good. And I think the two I would recommend are probably Fastmail, which is, they're a for-profit, you pay for them product. They're not end-to-end encrypted, like my next suggestion, but they don't mine your data. And they explicitly say they don't mine your data. And they are privacy-focused, even if they're not end-to-end encrypted by default. It's a really great service, and it has the full suite of email, calendar, and contacts, among other things. And so Fastmail is kind of like my go-to. I use it for all my business stuff and some personal stuff. And then because I wanted to, again, support companies that are really going that extra mile to make things private, and I wanted to research something that I could you know, wholeheartedly recommend to my audience, I looked for a truly end-to-end encrypted, secure, and private email service. And, and there are actually a handful out there that are, that are all good. But the one I settled on was ProtonMail. They've been around a long time. I've interviewed their CEO a couple times on my podcast, and I really believe that they're doing the right things and their product is very easy to use. And if you were talking with anybody else on ProtonMail, it's automatically encrypted end to end. And you can even talk to people who are not on ProtonMail and set up a way for them to, to read encrypted messages as well. So those are the first two phases. On the email front, this might be a stupid question. And I ask it because I am so entrenched in the Google ecosystem myself, right? I use Gmail. Again, it's so bizarre and I'm almost a little embarrassed about it. But my question is simply like, does it work? Like when you use a different email provider, like it's okay, you can just email someone in their Gmail account and it it comes back to you at, you know, Fastmail or ProtonMail and there's no loss of service or, or I guess what I'm saying is like, if you don't have to use this company that tracks everything you do, What's the trade-off? Like, what's what am I losing if I'm gaining so much? Mm. Okay, well, well, the nice thing about email is it's been around forever, and it's still based on standards, open standards. And so the nice thing about email is that you can email anybody. Like, with a phone, you can call anybody. You don't have to call somebody who's got the same cell service that you do, unlike 
messaging systems. <laughs> those are, have severe lock-in. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But so luckily, email is wide open. Now, the encrypted part of it is a whole different ballgame. And that's something that was just, it's you know, email did not have privacy and security really built into it. And it's old. I mean, email goes back to like the 60s or 70s. I mean, it's, it's that old. And, you know, when AOL first came on the scene for most of us in, you know, the mid-90s, that's when a lot of people got into email. But, I mean, even I was doing email, you know, well before that in college and, and so on. It just wasn't built for privacy. So that's why things like Proton Mail and some of these others that do end-to-end encryption have to really, you have to jump through some hoops. Like if, as long as you're in the same ecosystem, if you're both on ProtonMail, it just happens. That's great. It's, it's, it's the way it should be. But as soon as you, you know, if someone from ProtonMail emails you, there's some rigmarole. You, you're going to have to go through if you want end-to-end encryption. I mean, talk to Phil Zimmerman. He's the guy who created PGP for this exact reason back in the late 90s or the mid-90s. So as far as what you lose, you're, I mean... You don't lose anything. The hard part is just telling everybody your new email address, getting everybody to switch over to the new one. And and I don't think some services allow this. I don't know if Google does, but you could set up, for example, an autoresponder so that everybody who sends you something at Gmail gets an automatic response. Hey, I'm not here anymore. Use this email address. Now, I don't know if you want to do that because that means the spammers are going to get that too, right? So it's it's probably just easiest to tell people. But yeah, I mean, they, the services obviously, because it's based on open standards, they all interact and there's no trouble there. The issue is getting people to use your new address. And I will throw out one other little pro tip, and that is if you want to never change your email address for the rest of your life, regardless of whether or not ProtonMail or FastMail or any of these companies go belly up and you have to uh, find something else. If you buy a web domain, which is only like 15 bucks a year, most of these services, certainly the ones you pay for, allow you to, quote unquote, bring your own domain. So I own several web domains, but by owning that domain, like Amazon.com, that's a domain. FastMail.com is a domain. Google.com, those are domains. So because I own, uh, for example, FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com, I own every single possible email address you could come up with that ends in at firewalls, com. On the fly, I can make up an email address. So I could be, I could go into Macy's or some brick and mortar store that says, you must give us an email address to get this discount. And I could just make Macy's at firewalls, com. I'll get that. And they'll, they'll look at you funny. Because <laughs> like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's my email. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So that's a great little pro tip. I wanted to move a bit and understand, you know, there were a lot of things here that we spoke about that were pretty easy to maneuver around. And one that I will always hammer on as well is switching your browser. We get asked a lot, what tips do you have for privacy, online privacy? And because online privacy is like such a, like such a thing, like there's so many <laughs> ways you can go, so many routes you can take. Like, well, do you, you know, do you want to stop this? Do you want to stop that? Do you want to stop that? I always recommend like, folks, just switch your browser. Like it, it's actually extraordinarily easy. It's not difficult. I used to switch browsers a little frequently because I just wanted to see what was up with it. And I, as well, I use Brave now. And again, every single time, honestly, it's been easy. You're, these tools are set up to make it as easy as possible for you. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna import your bookmarks. You're fine. Like, <laughs> that's the obstacle. That's it. Moving on to when things potentially got difficult, right? I want to know if there's any big obstacles because I'm reminded, right, uh, back to Kashmir Hill, her experiment to rid herself of the big five. In that reporting, she said that once she had gotten rid of like all of the big five, that she hit like such a simple thing that she didn't know would be a roadblock. And that's that she recorded an interview. She had to record the interview like on like a separate digital audio recorder. She couldn't record it through what we're doing right now. Like I'm using a MacBook. She couldn't do that. And 
she had this file. She just had this file that was like multiple megabytes. If it's just an audio interview, probably 50 to 100 megabytes. And she had no way to get that audio file to her editor. She couldn't use Gmail. She couldn't put it in typical cloud storage places like like Box or Dropbox because they run on Amazon Web Services. And it was like, what do I do? I'm not physically located next to my editor. I can't just like, hey, here's, you know, a flash drive, you know, here's an SD card. And the infrastructure around her would not allow for it, which is which is crazy. Like, it's crazy that something's so simple and mundane. And so what I'm asking here is, did you have a similar moment like that where you realized something simple you were trying to do or, you know, complex, it doesn't really matter, but something was far more difficult to work around than you had anticipated? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Certainly because there are so many Google things, something was bound to trip me up at some point. But yeah, there's a few things actually that I struggle with that I had a little bit of trouble with. And one of them, let's address right off the bat, and that is because you were talking about, you know, getting files to people. Google Drive is is very popular. Dropbox is extremely popular. Microsoft has OneDrive, iCloud. And the thing that all of those have in common is that while they are encrypted in the sense that while transferring your file to and from, or even actually at rest on their servers, the files are encrypted, they hold the encryption keys. And so this brings up a point that I would have mentioned to Cashmere Hill <laughs> if I was a friend of hers. And that is, depending, I guess it depends maybe, I read the article too, but it's been long enough, I can't remember what the exact reason was. If it was a privacy thing, we could address that. If it's a matter of not supporting those businesses by using their services, which eventually make them money, that's a whole different thing. So I'm not going to address that. But in terms of the privacy aspect, if you're worried that these companies can, and they do, by the way, look well, not usually not humans, but certainly machines will review the files that you have stored on these drives, either for advertising purposes or a lot of times it's for anti-copyright, for copyright violations. They'll look and see, are you trading movies or music with other people? And they'll flag that and give you, know, give you grief. There are services, and I looked at this extensively years ago, that have end-to-end encryption, have client-side encryption. They cannot look at the files that you store in their services. And the one I went with was called sync.com, S-Y-N-C.com. And they are end-to-end encrypted, meaning that even if behind the scenes, sync.com uses Amazon Web Services, Amazon can't see what my files are. And so that is one option you could do. There's another great tool called Cryptomator that you could use that will allow you to encrypt folders within any public service like that if you want to trade files. But also there's some other great services. One's called Swiss Transfer. Mega, the offers this service as well. You can actually transfer quite large files securely through the web. You upload it, they give you a special link, you send that link to the other person, and you can actually put interesting parameters on that, like I want this to be downloaded once and only once, or this link is good for seven days, or I want to put a password on this link as well. So there are some interesting uh, things there. Actually, from a difficulty standpoint, using moving to sync.com wasn't that hard, I just moved my files over. So, But I did want to, since you mentioned that specifically, I wanted to bring that up. Two other things that that were kind of difficult. One was moving away from Google Authenticator. So many websites, when you're setting up two-factor authentication, you know, say, do you want SMS or do you want Google Authenticator? And they will actually explicitly say Google Authenticator, even though what they really mean is using what's called a TOTP or a time-based one-time password or pin code-based thing. And that's If you've ever done it, and the way it works is when you set up your two-factor authentication, they pop up this little QR code that you can scan with your app, and then it's called a seed, and then now you're in sync, and now your app knows, okay, so this is is how I start creating these 30-second-long 
six-digit PIN codes that when asked, I can provide. And now you're in sync with them, and from here on out, they'll be generating them at the same time you are, and they need to match when you enter them. But unfortunately, Google Authenticator doesn't really have a good way to back those up. They finally came around to do this, but they didn't for a long time. Like, if you had a bunch of these apps in your Google Authenticator on your phone and you dropped it in the toilet, you're screwed. Like, you couldn't, there was no way to get your two-factor codes because they weren't backed up anywhere. And so I was looking for a solution that would allow me to back those up. And I found one called Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, which is nice. You can actually back those up to the cloud now and you can actually access them from multiple devices if you need to, or if you lose your device, the, all those seeds and your pin codes or whatever can be recovered, which is great. I'm actually looking maybe to go to for a, a different one now, maybe one that's more open source. But anyway, the problem is because there was no easy way to do this, to move from Google Authenticator to Authy, if I've already got a whole bunch of these codes set up, the way you kind of have to do it now, since neither one of them will let you expose those seeds again to start it on a new app, you actually have to go to each and every service where you've got two-factor authentication set up, turn it off, which requires Google Authenticator to, you know, you you have to do two-factor to disable two-factor and then re-enable it and basically start all over again with Authy, which is a pain in the butt. So... Difficult, not impossible. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge pain. I also, I particularly like this story because it is something that is, there's so much minutia in there, right? And like these things about, like that you were just explaining, right? Sort of the nuts and bolts of, of two-factor or multi-factor authentication. And just like, yeah, like there are there are authenticator apps for your phone. And when you sign up for a new service, it says, hey, do you want to enable two-factor authentication? And you say, yes, I don't want it through a message, through like a text message. I don't want a six-digit code sent through SMS. I want to use a separate app. And it's like, okay, you can do that. And like you said, you got to scan a QR code that's shown on your monitor and you scan it with your phone. And then, okay, they're in sync and you start doing that. And this is all for the betterment of security. These are good practices. These are things that all of us are like, you have to use 2FA, like, because you do, you know, like, absolutely. And the end result to having this system that is so reliant on just Google, if you're using just Google Authenticator, the end result actually isn't, it's not getting in the weeds and it's not understanding the nuts and bolts. The end result is, I can't sign in. That's a big deal. And I think I think that's why I like that story so much because the end result is something that is simple. Like the end result is something that is painful and that everyone understands, which is like, I can't sign in the way I want to sign in. And the work that you have to do is you have to start from zero. It's a pain. That's extremely annoying. That's all, that's all I can say. <laughs> yep. So another little pro tip that I picked up along the way when you're doing the, for this problem in particular is when you're setting these things up and you see that QR code on the screen, take a screenshot of that and print it. That is a poor man's way to save your seeds and put it somewhere safe. And that way, if you ever need to start from scratch again, now again, if you use Authy, it'll back up to the cloud. If you set it up and you don't have to worry about it, but I still do it anyway, just, just to be safe. And the other kind of cool thing about that too is if you know, sometime later, you want your spouse, for example, to be able to access the same thing, you could just whip out that piece of paper and say, oh, scan this. And then now you're both in sync and their app is in the same sync as yours and they could use the two-factor as well. So that's another little pro tip. The real big one is in terms of going back to the subject of the ones that were difficult, the ones that, were, that, I, that I really struggle with, and I'm still working on this today, and that is Google Docs. Google Docs is 
amazing. I mean, I, I just no other word for it. I mean, it's basically completely replaced Microsoft Office in a free tool that's available in any web browser. And, and it works really well. I mean, it's, I can't tell you how many times, and I think I only, I, I can't count on my hand when I've gone to it. It's like, you know what? I can't use this. I really need to use Microsoft Office because it doesn't have feature X, Y, or Z. I, I just, I don't hit that. I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm not a power user, but I mean, it's got everything. So, it's uh, it's because you, it's because you just don't get a chance to enable those macros, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> you're right. So replacing Google Docs has been hard. I've come up with two potential solutions that I'll relay. First of all, there was one I tried really hard to like, and it's called CryptPad. It's great. It's secure. It's private. It's end-to-end -end encrypted. It's really, you know, as far as checking boxes, it, it checks them. And it's got, you know, all the features you need. But in practice, it's just kind of clunky. You know, I, I find the interface was just not fun to use. A lot of the documents took a long time to load. I often had to reload the documents. And, you know, I liked the idea, just the execution wasn't that great. And so in my search, I came across another thing called OnlyOffice. And it's not for the faint of heart. It's not quite as easy to do. You can pay a service that will host it in the cloud for you. I don't know yet what the privacy implications of that are. What I've decided to do instead is host my own. And that is something that I, you know, I'm not going to recommend to the average person. It's It, it takes some time in doing. But I went to a company called Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E, that actually lets you rent cloud servers in the sky. I've got my own Linux node that I'm running for five bucks a month. It's two bucks more to have it backed up. And it's got plenty of power to do what I want it to do. And I'm going to run only office on there. And so far, it's been working pretty well. But that is not for the faint of heart. The, the one that it, the one that I think has the most promise for everyday people is a new one called Skiff. And it's called Skiff. If you go to skiff.org, it's kind of in beta still. And right now, they only have like a, a word replacement, other words, like a document editor. They don't have a spreadsheet yet, but it is slick. And it's a really nice interface. And I think that it will be my future go-to for the average person when I'm recommending a replacement for Google Docs. I wanted to ask if, you know, there were these examples that were difficult, right? Google Docs, obviously, and also Google Authenticator. Was there anything, I don't know if the right word is just kind of silly or like surprising in terms of like, do you find yourself like clicking a link and then it's like, and it's a YouTube video and you're like, ah, I can't do this. <laughs> like, is there anything <laughs> like that? Well, it's funny you bring that up because whatever you admit, and I I do this all the time in being a privacy and security advocate, whenever you run across these lists of here's the Google product, here's the thing you should replace it with. YouTube's a tricky one because in, for most of us, most of us aren't YouTube creators. You know, we are YouTube consumers. And so from that sense, there's, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, you can, you can go to Google and I'll, we'll talk about this uh, probably in a second uh, when I get to some recommendations, but you can go to Google and turn off a lot of settings in terms of how much it remembers about you. And YouTube is one of the things you could do that with. So, but it's really, I mean, if it's only on YouTube, it's only on YouTube. I mean, so your choice is you watch it or you don't. Now, if you're creating content, if you're actually producing videos for others to consume, you know, then you could look at things like PeerTube and uh, Vimeo and some of these others, which I've done. But yeah, it's kind of, you can't really make the same recommendations, a blanket recommendation, stop using YouTube because for most people, it's, that's your only option. That's where things are. Right. Yeah. I wanted to move a bit again and see, you know, so much of this conversation has been about privacy, has been about, you know, making sure that the that the tools you use, the products you're using aren't collecting data on you. And yeah, that's it. I was gonna say, well, if they are, it's like, no, I don't, yeah, they shouldn't. But I wanted to ask, you know, is there any Google product? Like, is there one out there that isn't built to track you? And because of that, you know, because it's not built in that way that you'd be okay with using that's a really interesting question. So 
off the top of my head, the only product I know of Google's off the top of my head that I, that I, cause I've read articles that have said this in the past that, that explicitly Google says we are not mining this for data is supposedly Gmail. 2017, they came out and said, we are no longer going to be scanning your emails for advertising suggestions. Now that was a choice of Google's. They could, they could reverse that choice at any time. <laughs> so I don't trust any Google any farther that I can throw them. Right. But they say they're not looking at it for advertisements. They still do look at your emails in, in the sense that there are Google programs to do that. For example, for spam filtering. I mean, for them to effectively block spam, they do need to know what's in the email. It's maybe a little disingenuous for them to say they don't look at your emails. I'm sure they couched it in legal language to properly say they don't do it for advertising or whatever. But that's honestly, that's all I know. But I want to make the point that at the end of the day, where we are right now in the, in the age of the internet is we are in a moment, uh, we are an age of surveillance capitalism. And Google is a publicly traded company with a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits for their shareholders. So, you know, absent privacy regulations in the United States, the financial incentives are just too great to ignore. I mean, that's money on the table. Uh, so I would just assume that until and if they give a for pay version of Google that explicitly says that when you're paying for it this way, instead of paying for it with your privacy, that we're going to not collect data on you. I would just assume that at any moment, any Google product, unfortunately, can and probably will somehow monetize your data. Um, so, you know, if, as the saying goes, if, you know, if the, if the product is free, then you are probably the product. So, and unfortunately, unfortunately, the converse isn't true. Um, you know, just because you do pay doesn't mean they're not going to monetize your data. I mean, look at cell phone providers and internet service providers, right? I mean, you pay a lot of money for those guys and they're still mining your data. So while Gmail may be that one product that, that they currently are not mining for data, I, I would have to just assume that at any point that could change. And from a privacy perspective, I can't really trust anything that Google does until we have legislation that says they can't do it. Yeah. You brought up this term here, surveillance capitalism, and it's something that's definitely been discussed at length for a few years now. And for anyone who just isn't aware of what it is, right, because it is like an ominous sounding term, and it should be. Essentially, you know, surveillance capitalism is just this system that we have right now where companies make money and are allowed to make money by tracking you. They make money from learning things about you and then selling those things to advertisers or packaging it in a way so that the access to who you are is also sold. I wanted to split those hairs there because that is why a company like Facebook can say the words, we do not sell your data. Because factually, they do not. What they do instead is they build profiles about who you are, and then they sell access to those profiles to companies. They say, hey, we know all of this about David, about David Reese. They don't say, they can say something like, well, we don't know it's David Reese, you know, he's user ID, blah, 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 you know, but there are advertisers out there who are like, gosh, we were really trying to sell products to 33-year-old podcasters in cybersecurity who live in San Francisco. <laughs> and Facebook's like, oh yeah, we got those. We've got like, we, we have like thousands of those, believe it or not. <laughs> and that's a revenue model. Like that's a way to make money. And so that's, right, that's what surveillance capitalism is, is it's just companies making money based off of knowing who you are and selling that information or selling access to it. I wanted to wrap up here. We have talked so much about 
so many different things about, again, removing Google from your life. And it's gone from like, I'd say really basic stuff to, hey, use a different browser and there are multiple versions, there are multiple options out there. And it's gone down to like, where you said you were running your own like cloud server, you know? And it's like, I'm not gonna do that, you know, the average person. And so after hearing all of this conversation so that we don't have anyone feeling like they're powerless, feeling like, oh, that's too technical and so I shouldn't even start. For those people who wanna limit their reliance and engagement on Google, where should they start and and what advice do you have for them? Okay, well, as, as I said, I'm actually currently, you know, as we speak almost, in the middle of creating a series of blog articles on this. So I'd be remiss if I didn't immediately start there and say, you know, if you go to firewallsdonstopdragons.com, Look for Google, and you'll see several articles at this point. And so I'm trying to collect all this information together. If nothing else, it's a great starting point because these articles also, in these articles, I point to several other resources for listing out all the Google products that you may be using and, and suggesting potential alternatives. My articles will certainly cover the big ones, the several ones we talked about today, and then I can, you know, these articles will refer you to as others. So I... That's honestly the easiest way to go, just because, and again, it's not just because it's my site, but these articles will also reference several other resources that I have collected over the years that you can also look at. You don't have to just trust me. And I, you shouldn't just trust me. You should you should absolutely check out some of these other ones as well. So as preparation for this interview, I started putting this together, and it's going to end up being a blog article because I realized that while I was kind of you know, enumerating some of the big Google properties and, you know, kind of walking through, you know, here's how I, I would move off of these. And by the way, that whole run your own Linux server, that, that is, that is going to be an asterisk. That's got that, you know, that is most of the articles. My, my audience certainly is like, like my mom and my neighbors and people that who are not technical people. So, you know, my, my, my goal is to, is to reach the everyday non-technical person. So I will do my best to focus on things that are much more achievable, as you mentioned, by the regular people. But in thinking about about this, I realized that I there really should be some step zeros to these processes that I didn't cover yet, and I will. And you know, first of all, I'm a really big proponent of awareness and you know information. Like the first step in any of these things is understanding the problem. So what you really need to do first of all is understand what Google has on you. And thankfully today, because of Google and probably because of pressure from GDPR and some of these other th other things and the privacy community in general, they actually have created several interesting tools that you can use to see what information they have on you and to walk you through the major privacy settings and give you the opportunity to change them. So Google has a thing called a Google Privacy Checkup that you should check out and start there. And if you just, well, if you Google Google Privacy Checkup or DuckDuckGo, it maybe you can make that a new verb. Um, <laughs> you'll 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 find the tool, and the thing to realize is this is Google's tool, so they are going to use what we like to call dark patterns, which is something you and I talked about last year. They're going to basically use euphemisms to make what they're doing sound good for you. When in reality, it's really more good for them. So you know when you see phrases as you're going through this privacy checkup, you'll see phrases like personalized experiences and better recommendation or improved recommendations. Just realize that all of that means tracking. All that means keeping a history on you. So, you know, when they're presenting, you know, would you like better ads or would you like more relevant ads? You want to say no. <laughs> so, so the other thing is when you're done with that, they will then prompt you to go through a Google security checkup, which is, you know, as long as you're there, I would go ahead and do that too. The other thing that you might want to do is you and this should be sobering, and I therefore recommend that you do it, is find out what Google already knows about you. And you can now, again, I, I think this is probably because of GDPR, you can download 
all the information that Google has on you. And they've got a whole website for this. It's called takeout.google.com, like takeout food, takeout.google.com. And if you go there, you can actually download all your data. And I, by the way, just going to the site will list for you all the different things that Google has, their checkboxes, because you can decide, well, for example, you might not want to check the box next to Gmail because you probably have a copy of all your email and you know, you know, they have it. So you don't necessarily want to download every Gmail you've ever sent, but you'll see a list of all the other things they've got on you with check marks next to them. And I recommend you check those out. So step one, awareness, understand what your current settings are with Google and what data they currently have on you. Yeah. I wanted to interrupt there because I, as you were talking about this takeout.google.com, I went here just right now. And you were mentioning, right, you can see all the check boxes of the types of data they have on you. I'm just going to read them off because, oh boy, <laughs> like it is much more than I anticipated. They just have a section called arts and culture, favorites and galleries you've created on Google arts and culture. I've never done that, but maybe I have. They have calendar, they have Chrome, they have something called classic sites, the content and attachments of your sites created in classic sites. Don't know what that is. Okay. Contacts, crisis user reports, drive, right, fit, just Google account, Google business profile, Google Fi, Google help communities, Google pay, Google photos, Google play books. You kind of get, there's 47 boxes. <laughs> it's, it is sobering. I think you're absolutely right. And I just wanted to kind of address that immediately. It is, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. So the next one you could do is you could actually delete data that they have on you. And what the, you can go to the My Activity on Google. So there's actually another site. My Activity is all one word, myactivity.google.com. And then you can actually see some of the history there too. And then that website, I believe, I, the funny thing is, is I can't, and I run into this from time to time, my history is zero. Like I turned these things off a long time ago. So when I go to that site, I don't see what you are probably going to see when you go to that site, which would probably be scary. When I go there, it says literally no history. Like there's nothing for me to do on that site. My understanding uh, is that if you go to that site, however, you will find there's history there that you can ask them to delete. Uh, so that would be the next step. And these are you know big broad strokes using Google's own tools to understand what they have on you and, and to delete. And then and, you know, and then start working your way, make a list, you know, once you've done this, certainly, and as you're doing this, make a list of the Google products that you're using, probably several that you don't even remember using or forgot that you're using or didn't realize were Google, keep a list as you go. And then that's your to do list. And, and you don't have to do it all today. That's the thing is don't let it's going to seem overwhelming. This list is going to be long, it's going to be scary. But just make the list and then over time, just start working your way down that list. I would honestly, I would start with the easiest first. Do all the low hanging fruit. Whatever is easiest for you to do, do that first. It'll give you a sense of accomplishment. You know, you'll feel like you're getting stuff done. And then just, you know, and then slowly you'll work your way to the harder ones for you, whatever that is for you. Those are my suggestions. And one last one, and that is you might be tempted if you really want to go full tilt on this is okay, I'm going to delete my Google account. I'm going to go do all this stuff and then I'm going to delete my Google account. I would stop just shy of doing that. And here's why. A lot of security experts will tell you that you should plant your flag. And what they mean by that is if there is an important website out there for which you can create an account, like for example, a lot of government accounts, social security in the United States or internal revenue service, IRS, your medical portals, if there are sites where you can create an account for you, 
it's better that you own that and not somebody else. So the planning of the flag notion is go, even if you're not going to use them, go set up those accounts, put serious security on them, set up two-factor authentication, and then forget about them. At least now you know that nobody else can do it in your stead. And if you delete your Google account, eventually your user ID will get recycled. And that means somebody else will get it. And then who knows, someone who used to have your email address is going to reach out to them thinking they're you, and that could be bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't agree more with that. That whole kind of stake your claim idea is really smart because we live in a world where you have to you have to verify who you are based off of your digital trail and your digital address. And it's better that you control that in a way that you feel is private and secure rather than, like you said, it getting recycled. We have so many forms of identification that are based on other forms of identification that getting rid of one of them is a dangerous move. It's inconvenient. Carrie, that's all I had. I just wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today's show. Thanks for having me, David. To our listeners at home, if you want to learn more about de-googling your life, you can visit Carrie Parker's blog and podcast at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And you can also participate in Carrie's fifth anniversary giveaway in which 10 lucky winners will get a premium subscription to Malwarebytes. Hey, that's us. As always, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. On our next episode, we speak with Runa Sandvik about providing cybersecurity to high-risk individuals, like reporters in dangerous situations. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.